This week on Wealth Track, why veteran strategist Edgar Denny believes nothing is more important in predicting the markets than understanding Fed policy. The cost of money, the cost of mortgages, uh, the cost of business credit, and the availability uh, of, all, of all those uh, hinges on uh, monetary policy and uh, what monetary policy is likely to do. The importance of Fed policy is this week's focus on Consuelo Mac Wealth Track. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Funding provided by Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, Clearbridge Investments, Miller Value Funds, Royce & Associates, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, and Strategus Asset Management. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Talk. I'm Consuelo Mack. Don't fight the Fed has become an accepted Wall Street adage. It's a phrase coined by Martin Zweig, a legendary technical analyst, an investor who predicted the 1987 market crash to the day and was the author of the 1970 investment classic winning on Wall Street. Zweig wrote that the monetary climate, primarily the trend in interest rates and Federal Reserve policy, is the dominant factor in determining the stock market's major direction. Fast forward 50 years and Don't Fight the Fed is very much alive. This week's guest has been following that dictum during his 40-year investment career. He is Ed Yardeni, a respected Ph.D. economist, strategist, and Fed watcher. As head of Yardeni Research, the global investment strategy firm he founded in 2007, he puts out a detailed daily morning briefing and comprehensive What I Am Reading list, his compilation of the most pertinent articles from various news sources. Yardeni is also an author. His latest book, Fed Watching for Fun and Profit, a primer for investors, is all about the Fed he has studied for the last 40 years, and how he uses it to predict the markets. He writes, To do this job well, I've learned that nothing is more important than to anticipate the actions of the Federal Reserve System's Federal Open Market Committee, which sets the course for monetary policy in the United States. I asked him why the Fed is so important in predicting the markets. The Fed's extremely important because uh, they're everywhere. Uh, the, the Fed's uh, in the news all the time. The Fed is in charge of monetary policy, and monetary policy uh, affects all of us around the world, not not just in the United States. Uh, the cost of money, the cost of mortgages, uh, the cost of business credit, and the availability uh, of, of all those uh, hinges on uh, monetary policy and uh, what monetary policy is likely to do. And because monetary policy is much more centralized than fiscal policy, uh, monetary policy can act uh, more decisively, more aggressively, uh, more rapidly, uh, and uh, more frequently than fiscal policy uh, does to economic uh, events. So it's uh, it's become, just by, by its very nature, uh, more the most important policy we have. Right. It, it's also become an incredibly important policymaker globally as well. I mean, yes. you know, some people are calling it, you know, the world central bank. Is is that the case? It's, it's tentacles reach that far, its influence? 
Well, I, I, I think it's uh, I, I think it the Fed certainly uh, is very influential, and uh, what the Fed does can have a tremendous impact on the dollar and the exchange rate of the dollar relative to other currencies. Obviously, uh, can have a tremendous impact on other economies in terms of their exports, imports, and inflation rates, and can actually force them to. Uh, uh, respond with their own monetary policies in reaction to what the Fed's doing. The Fed uh, does not take any responsibility for the foreign exchange market, for the dollar. Right. They always said, hey, that's the, the Treasury does that. And it's not quite clear what the Treasury does there. But the reality is it's monetary policy that has an impact on the dollar and, the, and therefore uh, very directly on the, uh, other economies and, and other central bankers. But other central bankers have kind of... Uh, risen to the challenge and you know the european central bank has become hugely important in uh, in its policy deliberations and and uh, decisions and the bank of japan has also been ra rather important so i kind of don't view the fed as the uh, the, the the only player here i think it's mm -hmm. the central banks that we have to focus on uh, you know as as uh, as marty as Weig used to say uh you know that that uh, great great in, in, investor. Um, he's famous for saying, "Don't fight the Fed." Right. Uh, I would just generalize that to "Don't fight the central banks." And has the Fed's role uh, in the economy and also in the global economy has it evolved to become much more powerful? Right. Let's say over the forty last forty years of your career in Wall Street. The main focus of the Fed, uh, especially in the '70s under Volcker was to bring inf inflation down. Down. Mm -hmm. uh, but then in the late 70s, Congress uh, passed the Humphrey-Hawkins legislation, which basically created the dual mandate for the Fed uh, to keep inflation down and to keep unemployment down. I mean, that's, right. that's, that's not always an easy thing to do because they can be contradictory. Uh, and uh, so the Fed has been laser-focused increasingly on this dual mandate. And as a result, the, the Fed has basically taken on responsibility for something they really weren't meant to, which is uh, managing the business cycle. Uh, Do you think that's appropriate? I mean, I, you know, they are yeah. a creature of Congress, and Congress yeah. gave them this dual mandate. But is it? Aren't they the only central bank that has a dual mandate? And and is yeah. that appropriate? Well, one of the lessons I've learned over the years as an investment strategist is, you know, I don't do good or bad. I don't, mm -hmm. does it make sense? I have my opinions on it, but as an investment strategist, I, I kind of think, okay, this is what they're doing. This is where right. they're headed. This is, but but the reality is the Fed, uh, you know, in, in the early period in 1914 was basically created to create what they called an elastic currency. And so my interpretation of that is create financial stability. Uh, because the reason the Fed was created was in a reaction to the financial crisis of 1907, uh, right. which uh, was basically uh, solved uh, by the private sector, by J.P. Morgan, of all people. And government officials didn't like that. They they, they wanted the, the, an organization, a government bureaucracy that would uh, manage the uh, uh, ebbs and flows of, of credit in, in the economy. But as I said, along the way, in the late 70s, that became... Uh, Let's manage the, uh, the the business cycle. Uh, let's manage uh, not just inflation, but also uh, unemployment. And let's see if you can, you know, keep all, both the balls in the air and you know keep keep inflation down and and bring unemployment rate down. And uh, uh, Volcker uh, really uh, focused on bringing inflation down and did a great job of that. Um, and because inflation's come down for the past forty years, uh, the Fed has been able to focus on okay, inflation's coming down. Uh, then what we have to do is manage the business cycle. What 
is your interpretation of Fed policy now, and what do you uh, anticipate uh, its effect is going to be on the markets over the next year, for starters? Well, you know, after Volcker, we we had uh, Alan Greenspan. Uh, right. We had uh, uh, Ben Bernanke, then Janet Yellen, and now uh, uh, Jerome Powell. Uh, the, the three uh, chairs uh, following Volcker all had PhDs. They were all macroeconomists. Uh, they were all uh, good people, uh, but they were meddlers. Uh, that's the nature of macroeconomists. Macroeconomists want to make things better for all of us. So, uh, and and with the Humphrey Hawkins legislation, they felt legally they ha- had that uh, a mandate. So, with every one of these uh, Fed chairs, we saw that the, the Fed meddling more and more uh, with the economy and the financial markets. And under Greenspan, we had the so-called Greenspan put. So. The markets kind of got used to the idea that anytime uh, we uh, uh, had a swoon to the downside, it was up to the Fed to come in and, uh, you know, give us a put, uh, uh, pat us on the back, make us feel better, turn the market around. Volcker never right, had that. the market. Mm-hmm. Volcker was the last real conservative uh, central banker, classic central banker, focusing on keeping inflation down. Uh, he went through a terrible recession and he had a lot of threats uh, uh, thrown in his direction, and he just stayed with it. But because and he, he did you, what he you did. call him one of your heroes, as a matter of fact, Paul. Oh, Baker. absolutely. Right. And, absolutely. and the great, the great price disinflator is what you call yes, him. Yes, he was. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I mean, we wouldn't have had this amazing period of prosperity in the past forty years if he hadn't broken the back of inflation. And and uh, of course, other forces uh, have come in play to bring inflation down. Uh, but uh, so uh, Greenspan kind of created this Greenspan put idea that uh, the market goes down, the Fed has to respond in some way uh, to uh, avoid a recession and to avoid a complete meltdown in the financial markets. And uh, then Ben Bernanke uh, uh, thought that, uh, you know, the Fed hadn't succeeded beyond anyone's uh, dreams and come up with the uh, great moderation. He was the great moderator. Uh, and so... Uh, uh, he he came in a couple of years before, before ironically, before the uh, great uh, uh, recession of mm-hmm. 2008, uh, talking about a great moderation, and bam, we got hit by a, a bubble in, uh, in in the housing, in the housing market, market, partly mm-hmm. caused by by the Fed providing uh, easy credit, partly because the Fed was cre- concerned about managing the business cycle and avoiding deflation at that point, um, and so uh, Bernanke. Uh, very creative uh, fellow came up with all kinds of macroeconomic policies that nobody had really even dreamt of except him. He gave a speech, I think, in 2002, uh, where he made a list of, here's what I would do if we ever got into trouble. And it included quantitative easing, it included zero interest rates. And sure enough, he gave us uh, QE1, QE2, and uh, and then QE3 uh, uh, and, and zero interest rates. So, so that uh, was from his playbook. <laughs> that, was his, that was his playbook. Yep. And Janet Yellen continued that playbook. Uh, who, who you the call the gradual go- normalizer. She was the Janet gradual Yellen. normalizer because just the way Bernanke came in thinking, oh, it's great moderation, it's going to be a, a breeze, bam, he got hit by the recession. Uh, Yellen came in and said, oh, you know, it should be okay. Uh, at some point, things will get better and I could start raising interest rates to, to normal. And uh, she tried that uh, uh, in early 2016. And the markets... Uh, Took a dive, and guess what? Uh, this this Yellen came in with a Yellen put, uh, and uh, so we had the Greenspan put, we had the Bernanke puts, uh, the Yellen put, 
And now we have uh, Jerome Powell, very much into the tradition. He's not a he's not a macroeconomist, but he's mm-hmm. he's been a, around them long enough at the Fed that he's he, he's got the same mentality. And, and, uh, so and, and he, you're calling him the pragmatic pivoter, Jerome. He's the pragmatic pivoter. I mean, uh, you know, and I'm just being kind of descriptive. He's dealing with with the facts on the ground and what he feels he's got to do to to solve the problem. And so. Uh, he uh, he tried to normalize for a while, and so 2018, at the end of the year, the market uh, went into a tailspin. It was down 20%. It's really just a garden variety correction, but uh, the Fed immediately made it clear that, hey, hey, we, we get your message, uh, and uh, Powell started backing off of, of raising, continuing to raise interest rates um, and uh, kind of leveled things off uh, until the great virus crisis hit, and then he came in with... Uh, First, with just QE4, uh, which right. is okay. We, we'll we'll try to do what we did before, uh, and we'll buy seven hundred billion dollars of securities. And he lowered interest rates down to zero. This was on March fifteenth, uh, and it didn't work because the next day, March sixteenth, was a Monday, um, and uh, the markets took a dive, to a large extent because uh, the the president did a pivot and said, you know what, maybe the, it's just not a bad flu. Maybe this is something where we should stay home for a while. And so the markets took a dive. And then the next uh, week, the Fed came back on March 23rd with what I call QE forever. Uh, you know, people used to make the analogy of bazookas and the Fed's yes. using bazookas. Uh, well, the people were saying, well, after March 15th, maybe the bazookas don't have any ammo anymore. Uh, and uh, on March 23rd, they said, you know what? Forget about the bazookas. Forget about helicopter money. Remember that? Uh, yes, uh, that term? helicopter it, ban for they, Ben Bernanke. They, they they went to B fifty two bombers, just carpet bombing uh, the economy with with cash, and they haven't stopped. Uh, the money just keeps pouring uh, on the economy and in the financial markets. And so I would say that this has been a continuum ever since uh, uh, the Greenspan put. It's been one put after another. It's just they've had to do more and more uh, to keep things from uh, melting down. Um, and the question is, you know, how much more can they do, and where where does it all end if if it ends at all? Do you want to uh, answer that question? Not really. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I have my opinions about it. Uh, uh-huh. uh, you know, th- there are people who've been arguing this has all got to end badly. Right. Uh, for a while there, for you know, for the past 10 years, uh, there were people who were saying this is all going to lead to hyperinflation and higher interest rates, and that's going to be hasn't. a disaster. Or if it wasn't going to do that, it was going to create a big speculative bubble. The bubble would burst, and then we'd have another great financial crisis. And how are we going to get out of that one after we've already spent all the ammo and the bazookas and uh, and helicopter money doesn't work? Um, I, I don't know. I, I think there's there's more to the economy than just the Fed. I know we started out talking about how, the importance of the Fed, but it's not all about the Fed. There's hey, there's us. There's people. Right, consumers. Go to work every day, right? And and try to make things better for themselves, their families, their their businesses, their employees, and uh, I'm I'm kind of counting on on us to offset some of the excesses that we're seeing coming coming out of Washington, whether it be on the monetary side or certainly the fiscal side now. So we got both uh, both sides of policy uh, going to extremes that nobody ever imagined, uh, but. Uh, I think technological innovation, and where does that come from? That comes from those of us who see a problem, see an opportunity to create something that uh, will benefit all of us. Uh, And so I'm kind of counting on that. But for now, 
the the focus uh, policy wise, by the way, isn't just monetary policy anymore. It's also, also the excesses of fiscal. Put them together, and you get something called modern monetary theory, which right. uh, nobody imagined we'd be there now. No restraint, what, just, just keep priming the pumps, both fiscal yep. and and monetary. In, right. in that case. Modern monetary theory means just keep priming the pumps uh, for as long as you need to print money and as, and as keep long the as cash inflation, flowing. The the one proviso that the proponents of MMT make is that uh, you do that until inflation makes a comeback. Then you're supposed to kind of pull pull back on it. Uh, though the advocates of it also say that well, well, that's when you raise taxes on some parts of the economy. I, I think modern monetary theory is basically uh, uh, a manifesto for a power grab. Uh, for the government to have more power uh, mm -hmm. and kind of combining monetary and fiscal policy. And uh, it's it's odd to see that uh, Fed Chairman uh, uh, Powell uh, really has inadvertently kind of become the uh, the, the leading uh, enabler uh, mm -hmm. of uh, facilitator of modern monetary theory. Because a couple of years ago when he was asked about it, he says, nonsense. You know, it doesn't make any sense. But right. I guess that's Here exactly here we are. And not only that, but he's saying, hey, you know what? If inflation does make a comeback, well, we'll tolerate it a little bit above 2% if, if necessary. That's, that's what he said at Jackson Hole. Mm -hmm. So um, here we are with modern monetary theory. And, you know, in uh, practice, <laughs> at least, yeah. and if to no answer your question, to say it in name. Yeah. And to answer your question, it, it could lead to either Weimar and Zimbabwe with hyperinflation, uh, or it could uh, lead to kind of where Japan has been all these years. Uh, with a aging population, with a lot of technology, um, tremendous amount of MMT, lots of fiscal and monetary stimulus, mm -hmm. but they can't get that inflation rate up. And uh, I think we may actually be uh, be going down that same that same road as Japan, which is not exactly a disaster. It doesn't have no, to it isn't. Badly. No. Um, Ed, Ed, let me ask you because the Fed's role uh, initially, and you talked about Paul Volcker being. Uh, really the quintessential conservative central banker of old. And um, his one of his predecessors, William McChesney Martin, who was the Fed chair from 1951 until 1970, you know, uh, just an, another icon among central bankers, uh, famously said that the Fed's role of taking away the punch bowl um, just when the party starts to warm up, that that is a key role of the Fed. And he also said um, that if, the Fed didn't play that role of taking away the punch bowl when things were just starting to warm up. Um, otherwise, the Fed would be ineffective and futile. I mean, are we going into a you know an era where the Fed is going to be less effective and its uh, its efforts are going to prove to be futile? Well, it's a really good question. Um, you know, the reality is um, uh, we have uh, completely gone the other way. Uh, now the the Fed uh, just Brings out more and more punch bowls and uh, drink as much as you like. Uh, you know, it's 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 free. I mean, uh, with interest rates near zero, money is ba basically free. And uh, you know, anybody that needs money, uh, you know, if you can't get it, come to us. I mean, that's kind of where we are. Uh, it, it is kind of hard to imagine that this all ends well. Uh, but as I said, there are other forces at, at play here that may allow us to get through this a period of fiscal and monetary excesses. Uh, and kind of to, to, to a brighter day where we're not seeing these excesses to the, to the same extent. Um, but no, I, I think it's a little early. I, I, I'll, I'll call it when I see it, when, when I see that the Fed really just 
nothing that they're doing can can work anymore, uh, then I'll I'll con- come to that conclusion that they they've kind of lost it. Um, right. But um, for now, uh, don't bet against the Fed. It's still Marty Zweig. Uh, uh, you know, God bless him. Uh, you know, uh, he he got it right. Right. So, you know, the the title of your book is Fed Watching for Fun and Profit. We've taken a very serious turn in this conversation. Right. So let's let's get back to the fun and profit uh, part. So, you know, given the reality of what we've just discussed um, as a Fed watcher and a strategist, uh, basically, you know, what are you advising to your clients as far as investment strategy and telling them? The direction of the market that the the Fed uh, is enabling. Right. Well, look, if I'm going to be true to the principle here, don't fight the Fed. The Fed has lowered interest rates to zero, virtually across the board. The Fed is perfectly capable of uh, yield curve control, as they as they call it, which is another way of going back to what they did in World War II and said, not only are we ta- uh, targeting the Fed funds rate at zero, uh, but we're targeting the bond yield at zero point five. Uh, so right. I could uh, so. By by doing that, they're making bonds extremely uninteresting as a, as an investment, and to the extent that it's conceivable, it's possible that I'll be wrong, and this will lead to higher inflation. Why would you possibly want to own bonds uh, when when interest rates are this low? So they're kind of forcing all of us, like it or not, uh, depending no matter what your your risk preferences are, to seriously consider stocks as opposed to bonds. And right. there, uh, there is are, no alternative. The Tina yeah. theory. Right. Well, you know, uh, T-I-N-A plus M-M-T uh, is equal to uh, MAMU, the mother of all market melt-ups. Uh, you know? <laughs> uh, and uh, so uh, I don't, it's not E equals MC squared, but it's, uh, I think, fairly descriptive. What we're seeing here is that when you provide just extraordinarily easy monetary policy with zero interest rates and uh, make it very hard to see any alternative to uh, to stocks, other than, uh, uh, to, to bonds, other than stocks, I have no problems with some gold in this kind of environment. But uh, you know, there's a limit to how much gold most people want to have in a portfolio. Right. But, and and what what role would gold gold play in this environment? Well, gold uh, has done extremely well. Uh, yes, it has. Uh, but some gold is is fine. But that's not you know. I, I focus on stocks and bonds uh, quite honestly in my work. And uh, stocks still, still look attractive to the extent that they they have not only dividend yields, uh, especially the ones that have lagged behind, uh, but uh, if we come out of this thing, as we typically do out of these uh, morasses, uh, and, and see the economy growing, dividends grow, which is not something that coupons on bonds do. So I, I think um, the individual investor who's in stocks probably wants to stay in stocks. I think that... Uh, when I say don't fight the Fed, uh, I am concerned that the Fed is creating a melt-up situation in the marketplace, and that raises a real uh, serious problem. What do you do in a melt-up? Uh, you know, 1999, there was a big melt-up, and it took years for many of those stocks to, to make a comeback, if they made a comeback at all. At all. Mm-hmm. At, at all. But a lot of those were uh, earnings challenged. They didn't have any earnings. It was, right. all, it was all promises. Uh, I would say, you know, dividend yielding stocks, uh, stocks and, that don't pay dividends, but are growth stocks, uh, but have real earnings uh, because uh, they're in the right areas of uh, healthcare technology and information technology, stay with them. Um, but uh, if this thing continues to go up, um, just sort of in a straight line, then it's a melt up. 
and uh, taking some profits on the big winners and rebalancing into some of the areas that have lagged behind uh, might not be a bad idea. So one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, you know, given the fact that interest rates are probably going to be low for a very long period of time, even longer than we thought, you know, a couple of years right. ago. Right. Uh, what's your one investment recommendation? I really don't have a, a problem with the S&P 500 as an mm -hmm. index. And if you want to get a little gamier, you can do a NASDAQ uh, in, index. Uh, but recognize uh, that uh, it's, it's, it's late in the game here. I mean, it's, it, I mean, the game really started on March 25th. Uh, so uh, in terms of the latest game. Uh, right. But uh, at this point, I think uh, rather than telling somebody who's totally in cash what to do, I'd rather tell people who uh, are still invested uh, didn't uh, flinch, didn't get out of the market, have been long-term investors, stay with it. I, I think uh, the, the, the 2020s, uh, at least from a point of view of technological innovation, productivity, and prosperity, uh, could could be another roaring 20s, just the way the 1920s were. Uh, notwithstanding uh, all the political uh, uh, turbulence we're seeing in our, the country and notwithstanding the excesses of fiscal monetary policy, uh, I think just bet on us, bet, bet, bet on you and me, people who go to work and try to uh, make, make, make our lives better and make the economy better. Edgar Denny, always a pleasure to have you on WealthTrack, and thank you so much uh, for spending time with us. And also congratulations on your new book, Fed Watching for Fun and Profit. Thank you so much. At the end of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is read Ed Yardeni's book, Fed Watching for Fun and Profit, a primer for investors. Yardeni is a really good writer. He's been following and studying the Fed for over 40 years, from Volcker to Powell. It's been an eventful four decades on many fronts, including the Fed's expansion and evolution into the world's most powerful and influential force in the financial markets. This is a book for investors, but you don't have to be a sophisticated one to understand it, enjoy it, and profit from it. Next week on Wealth Track, top-rated economist Nancy Lazar identifies the powerful forces driving the economic recovery. And in this week's extra feature, Yardeni tells us how he finds the time to write books in addition to his daily output. Thank you for joining us. Have a great weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.